Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the Autism Science Foundation Weekly Podcast. Last week, I participated in the Phelan McDermott Syndrome family meeting in Dallas, and I attended something called a McPosium. Phelan McDermott Syndrome is abbreviated with PMS. Phelan McDermott Syndrome is abbreviated by PMS. Now, these were short scientific presentations, which were then followed by discussions by family members, and then scientists answered the questions generated by family members. The idea was to get the information from a family perspective. The discussion of the entire McPosium will be published. But I am sorry if people listening to this podcast thought I was going to talk about the other PMS, premenstrual syndrome and autism. There is a new study out about menstruation issues in women with autism, and it shows that women with autism do experience menstruation differently, especially premenstrual syndrome. Frankly, I think that if humans on this planet in 2000 years have not stopped menstruating, maybe evolution is a myth. There has got to be a better way, I'm sure. Anyway, why does this matter for autism? PMS, McDermott syndrome, is caused by mutations within a chromosome, within chromosome 22, specifically within the shank gene. About 1% of people with autism have a mutation in the shank gene, making this one of the more common monogenic or single gene causes of autism. Even if your child is not this 1%, they may be affected by treatments and interventions that are focused for Phelan McDermott syndrome. Researchers have found that turning this gene back on in adulthood alleviates some of the symptoms of autism in a mouse model, meaning that therapeutics developed for PMS may also help those with idiopathic autism or autism with no single gene cause. This gene has also been linked to schizophrenia. The protein produced by the gene plays a role in the functioning of synapses, which are the connections between nerve cells where cell-to-cell communication occurs. Within synapses, the shank 3 protein acts as like a scaffold that supports the connections between neurons, ensuring that the signal sent by one neuron is received by the other. The protein is also involved in the formation and maturation of dendritic spines. These dendrites are specialized extensions from neurons that are essential for the transmission of nerve impulses from cell to cell. These spines are actually small outgrowths from the dendrites that further help transmit nerve impulses and increase communication between neurons. So now you know why it's so important to autism. However, if you look at people with Phelan McDermott syndrome, they may have an autism diagnosis, but it also may be secondary to all their other issues. Shank 3 is expressed all over the body. And while a large percent of them have core autism symptoms, most of them are in wheelchairs or need other supports. They have severe motor problems. Most, if not many of them, are nonverbal and have intellectual disabilities and a lot of medical issues involving the GI system and the kidneys. They fit into the more severe end of the autism spectrum. But helping these symptoms can help people even without these mutations. So not all kids with autism have mutations in shank 3, and not all kids with Phelan McDermott syndrome even have autism, although about 70% do. So the first topic was epilepsy and seizures. Nathan Holder from Texas Children's Hospital explained the different types of seizures, absence, partial complex, and myoclonic. Seizures are seen anywhere between 40 to 70% in people with Phelan McDermott syndrome. Now, one seizure is a seizure, and two seizures is epilepsy. At Texas Children's Hospital, the number was 46%. 
Unfortunately, seizures can be fatal, and actually there is a condition called sudden unexplained death in epilepsy or SUDEP. The presence of epilepsy increases with age. So young children younger than five, the prevalence is about 10%. But in adulthood, anywhere between 18 and 64, it's closer to 60%. The average onset of, of a seizure, the average age of onset of a seizure is about five years, but there's a huge range and variability around that. So even if you don't have seizure as it, even if you don't have a seizure as a young child, you still have a high likelihood of having a seizure at some point in your life. Children with Phelan McDermott syndrome and seizures, children with people with Phelan McDermott syndrome and epilepsy may be, may have one seizure to one hundred per day. Now most is a typical obstant seizure. Obstance is staring out, no activity, a blank stare with maybe some stereotypies. There were some focal and some myoclonic, which is the kind of herky-jerky seizure that you're probably used to seeing on TV. And 18% of kids with Phelan McDermott syndrome who had epilepsy also have something called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. This is epilepsy that's resistant to medications, and all types of seizures are present. Now, in addition to having EEG abnormalities with epilepsy, 25% of people with Phelan McDermott syndrome have this abnormal EEG or electrical brainwave activity without epilepsy. So abnormal EEGs without epilepsy is also seen in autism. And it's a tricky thing. Some parents may notice the seizures. They can be obvious. Sometimes they're not so obvious, especially these obstant seizures. Treatment for the seizures can be medication or, in extreme cases, surgery. So what about an abnormal EEG without seizures? The doctor suggested that you treat the seizure, not the EEG, but if you treat the EEG pattern, it might lead to better outcomes. It's been shown to be helpful in other genetic disorders like tubular sclerosis, but not studied in PMS or even idiopathic autism. The data is messy, so keep that in mind. The EEG pattern can evolve over time and it can normalize. The EEG can stay the same and the seizures can get better. And that especially happens on medications which increase the seizure threshold. They also found no correlation between MMM. There was also no real correlation between brain structure and presence of seizures. The discussion at the table focused on how to recognize and type different types of seizures. Panelists suggested that parents try, at least try, to videotape the seizures and bring those videos to their doctors where they can help. Parents had questions about cannabidiol and other treatments that are not traditional medications. Now, another issue facing families is challenging behaviors, and this discussion was led by Nathan Call at Emory University. Problem behaviors are more common in people with Phelan McDermott syndrome, and they include things like aggression, self-injury, PICA, which is eating things, elopement, vocal tics, vocal tics, and toilet training issues. Now, how are they treated? Well, drugs and behavioral interventions. Behavioral interventions include ways to minimize a behavior where you want it to be reduced by first reducing access to a preferred item or allow them escape from the demand. So really what they need is a functional behavioral assessment. The thing to do is to figure out what the purpose of that behavior is for that person. So what happens then, what happens then is that, what happens then is that the person is presented with different demands and they see how the behavior has changed, made worse, or even better. 
This does not include punishment-based treatment. So I know many of you may have heard and some, I know many of you are concerned about certain behaviors being punished or kids getting shocked. That's not the case here. Instead of being, the goal here is instead of being aggressive, the therapist will allow the child to use something like a card that says iPad. So if they're being aggressive to get an iPad, this is how you change the behavior. It can reduce it can reduce aggressive behavior, and then they learn to request. It can show what is possible, but you know it's hard to scale up these sorts of things because they need a lot of one-to-one training with trained interventionists, which are hard to come by. The evidence is also limited on this because there's small samples. The presenter Nathan Call showed this behavioral. Adv- the presenter Nathan Call showed that this behavioral intervention can help kids with pica, which is eating stuff they should not be eating. Now, this includes things like safety pins and rocks. Talking to clinicians who were at the meeting, the behavior seems to come from more mouthing and not eating per se. This is a behavior that's developmental. It's typical in babies up to nine months. Babies chew and mouth everything. We just don't prevent them to doing so. We just don't prevent them from doing so. So this is a developmental behavior. How do you alter that in an adult or an older child? Another thing that was discussed are these body-worn accelerometers to differentiate between different types of behaviors. Scientists are now using machine learning procedures to classify these different types of behaviors, and hopefully this information can be used to determine what medication to administer and when. Maybe. Finally, Joe Buxbaum talked about clinical trials for Phelan McDermott. Three drugs were of interest. The first was IGF-1, which has shown preliminary efficacy in a small study published a couple years ago, but Seaver just got approval to increase the, the size of that trial. ASF is also funding a similar study at Seaver, looking at people with idiopathic autism and how they respond to IGF-1. Soon, we'll be posting an interview with Alex Kolovzon at the Seaver Center about this study and what they're finding, so stay tuned for that. The second was oxytocin, which I've talked about before, and shows promise in an early animal model. Finally, he presented early animal model again of a drug called AMO. Now, this is a cancer drug, which is now in a clinical trial at Seaver, at Seaver to treat seizures in people with Phelan McDermott syndrome. Just like the IGF study, we hope that if it works, it might be tried in people with idiopathic autism who also have seizures. The meeting organ, as I mentioned, the meeting organizers are going to be present publishing not only the presentations, but also they did this great thing where they allowed parents to rank in real time their priorities for clinical research, their questions, um, and how they ranked different things. So, in terms of clinical trials, for example, parents ranked language interventions as number one, and cognitive outcomes or cognitive interventions as number two. They used this amazing app that was pretty ingenious, and I'd love to see it used at places like Day of Learning or even the Autism Society of America. When the publication comes out, I will definitely let you know. This was certainly a patient-centered or this was certainly a patient-centered family meeting with scientific discussions, really truly interacting with parents. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.